Well, Carlos and Meredith Block are um, our global partners that we have been in relationship with over a number of years now, and that what you saw is a training center. They need about $60,000 more. They want to finish that, and it will be used not only to teach people um, in that jungle area um, how to become um, better uh, with agriculture and really feed themselves and those who are poor in that area, but beyond that, they're able to um, they have a window of opportunity the government's given for them to teach people about Jesus in that training center. So we would love to come around that. This Wednesday night is our Thanksgiving Eve service. The offering we'll be taking for that service out of Thanksgiving is to go to them. You can give now or at any time. Um, we encourage you to do so. If you want to know more, I did a podcast. You can go onto the app or you can look under the website. Uh, a couple of podcasts, one called Helping Others in the Jungles of Peru, and you can find out more about their story. So we would love for you to be a part of that. The other thing I want to share with you is we had a congregational meeting after the service this last Sunday, and you affirmed Garfield Bowen as one of the members on our leadership board. Garfield with his wife, Mavlin. So... I don't know. I see Garfield out here. I don't know if I see him, but um, there he is. Thank you. Congratulations. You are loved and affirmed. Um, Great. Well, I'm going to ask for you to think a second about this uh, passage of Scripture we'll be looking at today, Acts 27. And I want you to put it in the context of what has been happening. It seems that um, Paul was told that he would suffer and that everything from that point on seemed to head south. It, it, it was one bad thing after another. You ever had that kind of experience in your own life? You do a house project. Let's say you're going to just change a light fixture. You're thinking it's $200, right? And then you get up there and you find the electrical wiring is bad. And not only to that one, but to a whole bunch of other ones. And this $200 project is beginning to be $2,000. And it seems like one thing after another happens. Well, that's what happens in Paul's life. He has been um, desiring to come to Jerusalem to give an offering that he has taken for those who are impoverished in Jerusalem. Gets there, and there is a riot in that riot. He's about killed. He is taken out by the Roman guard, and the commander's about to beat him, and he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. He chooses not to. He puts him on trial one more time in Jerusalem. Can't get anywhere with that group, so he decides he's going to go up to Caesarea because Paul has called his Roman citizen. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, so he now needs to take him to this area of Caesarea, which was kind of the uh, headquarters for the work of Rome in that Palestine area. So he takes him to the seaport Caesarea. On the way, 40 Guys called the Schiari, who are men of the dagger, who are zealots, who have become assassins. And they make a vow, we're gonna, we're gonna kill Paul. In fact, we're not gonna let, we're not gonna eat or drink until we get him and he's dead. Well, God foils their plans. He gets a whole troop, brings them to Caesarea. So now Paul's in Caesarea, and he's thinking, okay, I'll get my trial. He ends up having three different trials, and he's in a legal maze. He just can't get out of it for two years. This kind of suffering for Paul, because he's a man who has action wants to keep going, I think was probably more difficult than, he probably would have said, just give me 40 lashes. And so he has this going on. Now, after two years in this legal maze, 
Paul is, is finally um, given permission to have his trial in Rome. And that's where we pick up with Paul. One thing after another has gone bad. You think this will be just easy. It's just a short trip from Caesarea going all up through the bays and islands of the Mediterranean to get to Rome and there he can have his trial. Not quite what you would think. Paul gets on this ship and as he's taking this trip, comes into some of the, the most difficult times of his life to a place where he actually loses hope. Now, what I want to do this morning is to walk through this passage of scripture and I'd like to give you what I call traveling tips for staying calm in the storms of life, okay? You may be in one of those storms or have been in one and you're kind of pulling that thread and things keep just getting worse. And you're at a place where you just don't know what's going to happen next. You may have come out of that and saying, God, thank you so much. Or you may have someone who's a friend who right now is going through a tough and difficult season. Or you just may have what happens in November for so many people is sad, right? That just seasonal affective disorder where just everything doesn't look too good. Well, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. And the first thing I want you to note as we begin to look at this passage of Scripture, in these first six verses, um, one of the tips that I want you to kind of take into your heart and think about is that we, as you look at the life of Paul, I think he lived gratefully. He made that known through different passages of Scripture. But he lived gratefully, and I, I think he would look for the small gifts of God as he traveled throughout his life. And you'll find this in this passage of Scripture. So when we go through these first six verses, I want you to look for if there's a possibility that you could see where possibly in this Paul is is looking at some gifts and giving thanks to God. Because this idea of gratefulness and peace, there's a relationship between them. I've talked often about the cousin of, of, of thankfulness is joy. Well, there is something about being grateful that leads to calm and peace. So let's read these verses as we look at this passage of scripture and see if you can see some small gifts. When the time came, we set out and sail for Italy. And notice again the word we. That is a designation throughout the book of Acts that now Luke is with him and Luke is an eyewitness. And so we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramitium and on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. I have to tell you, I practiced that, Adramitium. So (laughs) give me a little credit for that. Try and say that. He was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. And the next day, when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Putting out from, to sea from there, we encouraged, uh, we encountered strong headwinds and that made it difficult to keep the ship on the course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia, of Pamphylia, landing at Myra, and in the province of Lycia. And there, a commanding officer 
found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. And the reason for that ship was because it probably came up that direction. Uh, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world at that time, and so they were going to bring it to Rome where they would disperse all that food. So this first part, if you look at there's there's two things that um, that, that you may have seen. But one of them is just this, what I call the kindness of an unexpected stranger. Here is the Roman commander, and it's actually the imperial, um, the Italian regiment, and they probably received honors for things they had done in war in the past. They were an elite force, and they would be used at, at, at this time now to, um, to do confidential errands where they would be given a special assignment to make sure that it gets from A to, to B. And that was part of what's going on with these criminals and, and getting them to Rome. And so here is this guy. He treats Paul kindly. And, and the, it says that he let him off the boat. And he let him off the boat to visit with some of his friends, this church that he was in visiting that city. And it says he cared for his needs. And the, and the word cared for his need is, is, is a medical term. And Luke, being a doctor, uses some of those kind of terms because he understands it. And, and he talks about it. So there's a sense where this guy, Julius, comes along lets him off the boat, lets him be tended to for some medical things, lets him be with friends. And that's the first thing. There are small gifts, and sometimes we just look by them. Here's a guy who didn't need to, becomes this kind of unexpected, kind stranger in his life. And then the next thing you see also as he's traveling along, he has um, what I would call the presence, um, the loyal presence of, of a couple friends. One of the guys is Luke. Luke goes with him. There's, there's a chance because when you would bring criminals to another place, you, you didn't get to bring your friends along, so to speak. But because Paul possibly at this time had some medical issues, Luke goes along as his physician. So here is another gift, a small gift of God. Here's Luke being able to go with Paul. And then Aristarchus. Who is this guy, Aristarchus? He's from Thessalonica. He probably was one of the first converts of Paul when Paul made that second missionary trip where he went through Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica, and there Aristarchus followed him and became a loyal friend of his. One commentator makes this statement with regard to Aristarchus. He says, there was only one way in which Aristarchus could have accompanied Paul on the last journey, and that was by enrolling himself as Paul's slave. It is very probable that Aristarchus chose to act as a slave of Paul rather than to be separated from him. And I think of Paul as he's had all these experiences, things going from bad to worse. He's now in this ship. He's traveling. And one of the things that I'm I'm sure as he looks at how God is providing for him, he sees these small gifts. And I ask you to think for a second. The situation you're in. You may not even be in a difficult situation. But I want you to think, are there some small gifts on your journey right now that God has given you? It's pretty appropriate when you think of Thanksgiving. This is a good time to stop and to say, because when you start on a trip and things get bad to worse, you know, when you've spent the 200, now you're at 500, and now you're getting close to 1,000, you're not really looking for the small little gifts of God in that, are you? But there's an interesting thing about Gratitude, living gratefully, and how it produces peace. One author writes, gratitude is the appreciation of things that are given to you, things you couldn't have created on your own. 
it automatically puts you in touch with something greater than yourself. It points to God. So there's a sense when you start living gratefully, you start looking at these small gifts, it begins to take your eyes off what's going on and points you to what God is doing. It's important because our minds, this author says, tends to default to negativity. We, we, we need gratitude to prevent negativity from smothering our lives like a black cloud. Negative thoughts can take many different forms. Worry, self-criticism, judgment, disdain for people around you. But whatever form it takes... It cripples you. We like to think that we react to the world as it is, but the truth is we react to the world that exists in our minds. The inner world completely colors what we see with regard to reality. And and you're constantly worried, for example, the whole world starts to look in this perspective as a dangerous place. John Milton, the author of a Paradise Lost, I remember reading it in college, not understanding hardly anything about it, but these words make sense. The mind is a place unto itself that can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Negative thoughts can literally screen out everything positive around you. Gratitude restores peace of mind when negativity threatens to destroy it. So looking for small gifts of God as you journey through life has the ability to bring some calm and peace and put your eyes on a focus different than just the things that are going around about you. And so not only do we see this, the next thing as we go through this passage of scripture, I just put the words living gratefully. Another traveling tip is to be wise. Um, When you have the opportunity to share wisdom and you do share wisdom and it's really out of your experience and people reject it and, and you're put in a position where someone over you makes a foolish choice. I think what's interesting as we look at the life of Paul is he kind of lets it go and then believes God and says, God, you'll still get me to where you want me to be, even in the midst of someone else's foolish choice. Look at this, verse 27, verse 7 of chapter 27. We had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally cleared Kidness. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island past the Cape of Salome. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fairhavens near the town of Lycia. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in fall and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. That's the translation from the um, New Living Translation. It, it, others as commentators talk about it. You know, Paul was probably a pretty significant person at this point, had traveled as much as many people. You think about his record, he talks about all the things that happened. He actually t- shares that he had been shipwrecked a couple different times. And so he had been a wayfaring person. He had been on the sea. So he gets this group together, and you can see, here's Paul, who has a lot of experiences and a lot of wisdom. He's there. There's the commander of the army. There's the pilot of the ship, and there's the owner of the ship. And they're making some decisions on, should we travel in this weather? And Paul kind of raises his hand and says, I've traveled in this before, and I'm encouraging us all not to go. Well, if you continue to read... That's not the response. Men, he said, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. Now, this is not a prophetic word. This is just a word based on his wisdom and his experience. 
But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain because the officer in charge of the prisoners was in charge of when the ship would go and where it would go and all those different things. It was his ship, in a sense. The pilot piloted it and the owner owned it. So in charge of the prisoners, he listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fairhavens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew, so the sailors now are also kind of stepping into this, they wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, which really isn't too far, and to spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. So Paul offers his wisdom. He, he shares it with them. They don't take it, they reject it, and Paul doesn't mope, he doesn't complain, he doesn't do anything like that. He, he just, he, he does what I said, he lives gratefully, he then is wise in what he offers, and he lets it go. He goes, you know what, I am not bound by the foolish choices of other people. God will still get his will done in my life. I just want to encourage you to think about this for a second. You are not bound, even in the situation where someone might be making a foolish choice, in a business situation, in a school situation, whatever, someone may be making a foolish choice. Now, we'll go on and you'll see there's ramifications to that choice, but what God wants to do in your life is not ultimately determined by anyone else's choice. He will use those experiences in your life. But he's still in control. So Paul is wise. He says, okay, I'll let it go. You guys didn't listen to me. That's okay. And then we come to the next part. And the next little um, tip I have is to hold on to God. Okay? Hold on to God. Um, I'm not, I, at first I wrote this and I wrote hold on to hope and then I realized that's not really what's going on here. It, 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 it's not in what you see or you don't see because that's where we usually put our hope, into things that we can see, the signs, circumstances. But what you find here, as we read through this passage of Scripture, is they're in a place where they have nothing to hope in. Listen to these words in, in verse 13. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. Okay, they're pretty hopeful now. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore. And they come short, close to Short Creek. But the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength called a northeaster burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gate. Now, they're running with the gale of this wind and they don't have control of the boat. They're just trying to Steer the boat however they can so that it doesn't fall apart. And so we sailed along the sheltered side of the small island of Kata, where we, with great difficulty, we hoisted aboard the lifeboat that was being towed behind us. So we don't want to have a drag. Let's take the boat. We put that into the boat. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it, which is something they would do back then because you didn't have nails, you didn't have ways to keep those boards together. They would put them together and, and, and they would be held together, but in times of storms, they would actually take ropes under there in order to fasten it and hold it together more fully. So here you have an eyewitness account of Luke, and, and you can you can tell Luke is excited about this because this gets like 44 verses of Scripture compared to anything else, okay? So Luke is excited to tell you all these little details because you may not really care, 
But historians go back and go, wow, when you read some of these specifics, where he talks about the landmarks, it, it gives um, veracity to this word. This is not just some concocted story. This has got some real teeth in the sense of it having some historical background. Um, Josephus and, 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 and other historians write about these kind of things. So they hoisted up the lifeboat, they put ropes around the hull, and they were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Syrtis off the African coast. So there's not a lot of miles between that northern Mediterranean coast and then to Africa. But one of the problems would be if this northeaster came down, it would it would force the ship to move. And they know this because they're sailors. That's not where you want to go. And if that happens, because they've had many recorded, there's many ships that have hit the rocks, they're concerned that that's where they're heading. So they're doing all they can as best they can to not go in that direction. So they lowered the the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing cargo overboard. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. And the terrible storm raged for many days. Blotting out the sun and the stars. And at last, all hope was gone. I like the way the New International Version um, writes this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. I want you to note that. We. This is Luke writing this. He's talking about the pilot of the ship, the owner of the ship, the commander of the soldiers. He's talking about the sailors. He's talking about the passengers and criminals, 276 people, including Luke, including Aristarchus. And I'm thinking including Paul. Ever been in those situations where you just have, there's no signs of hope in this situation. There is nothing to grab onto. I mean, the sun, which would guide you by day, you can't see that. The stars that would guide you at night, you can't see that. You have no idea where you're going. You have no control of the situation. You're being pushed by forces that you can't do anything about. You can't even hang on to hope because you can't see any signs of hope. Um... I have to share with you this experience um, that I had. For the last year or so, I've been in a process with my daughters and some other family members getting uh, a citizenship through Luxembourg, Europe, because I have descendants from there, so I'm getting a dual citizenship. And so we have been working on this process, and, and it so happened just a few weeks ago, we had a short window where we could actually go to Luxembourg, got good flight prices and everything. Where It, it was going to be a short trip. My daughter, who I went with, um, only had a few days. So we were flying in Friday night, coming in Saturday morning into Charles de Gaulle Airport, and then I would be bringing her back on Monday afternoon. She'd be flying back to work, her child, all other kind of things. And I stayed a, a day or two longer. And I, I went to some museums in Paris. I went to the Musée d'Osprey. You know what? That's the museum, museum of Osprey. And I just, doesn't it sound better in French? <laughs> I mean, every Musée d'Osprey. Uh, and so, um, 
So we, we, we land in Charles de Gaulle Airport. We get our car. We head out. We know one of the first things we have to do is stop in a town, find a pharmacy, and if we're going to go eat anywhere or stay overnight anywhere, we have to have a negative test for COVID, right? So we find this town, Ram. Um, and we come into this town in narrow streets, and my daughter has on her uh, her Google Maps exactly where it is. We pull in about a block and a half away from this pharmacy. We get out of the car. She wants to go to the trunk and get her computer and put it in this black bag where she has also her little purse that has her passport, COVID cards, credit cards, keys, everything. So she gets all that. She puts it in, and we start walking. We walk across the street. We got about another block to go to get to the pharmacy, and she just leans into me and just gives me a hug and says, this is the greatest dad. And we're, we're real, this is fun. And we walk into the pharmacy, we get up there, I pull out my passport to get them to do it. My daughter's a PA, a physician assistant, so she understands what we're supposed to be doing here. She goes to look for, she's looking at her back for her, she goes, dad, I must have left my little person, my passport in the car, can I have the keys? I said, sure. She runs away. I'm trying to communicate in French, which I have no French at all, Wee oui, wee. Oui. And and I'm not sure what she wants. She's away in an ordinate time, you know, a space of time. I'm kind of waiting for her to come back. All of a sudden, I see her coming back. She's rushing towards me. She's got her mask on because you have to have masks. And I see her eyes, and they look filled with panic. And she goes, Dad, I can't find it. I can't, that, my, my passport is just in that little purse. That's my credit card. It's my COVID card. It, it, you know, and she's just panicked. And I said, you know, we'll find it. You know how dads. Yeah, we'll find it. It's probably in the car. I looked everywhere. So we go back. We look in the car. I can't find it anywhere. I go, okay, maybe it's under the car. I look under the car. It's nowhere. We look all around the area. It's nowhere. It's like vanished. Either pickpocketed or lost, we don't know. She, she's just in tears. She goes, Dad, it's ruined. We can't do anything. We, we're going to end up not being able to do this. And, and oh, it was just, and so we said, oh, okay, let's go talk to the store owners that are right where our car was. And so we go in and we try and negotiate in as best we can. A little purse, you can see it out here. We finally get them. To, so we go to a couple of them right there. I decided to go across the street, at least to a few. Go to a couple. There's no way they're going to see that. I come back, she's now at her worst, I mean, hopeless. It, it was one of those situations where you go, we flew all the way here, we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to get a passport, how long will that take? You know, and so we're, we're, we're I'm, I, I'm just seeing her in this devastated state, and I just pray up a prayer, because the only thing I can hold on to is God. And I just said, God, we just need your help. I breathe that prayer, and I reach my arms around, and I have this watch on. And as I reach my arms around, it, it flashes to 1111. Well, you may go, 1111, what's big about that? For me, the last year, a couple of years, it's been that God said, watch. And one of the things he does at unusual times is I'll look, and all of a sudden I'll see the clock says 1111 or something, 1111. And, and it's in those times when I'm also in a stressful place. And it's God's way of saying, I've got things lined up, and I'm it's going to happen soon. I'm taking care of you. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to about to go, you know, we're going to find your passport or something like that. I just give my daughter a hug. I see that. And I don't even have faith to believe that he's talking to me. I'm like Paul or like you right now. 
And I hug her, and I'm kind of in tears with her. We said, well, let's just go across the street and ask the lady. Maybe she saw it, the street across the owner. We asked the lady, and she thought we wanted to buy a purse. And no, no, no. <laughs> she comes out, looks under the car, and then as we're about to leave, she says, you know, you should, you should tell the police. And I'm thinking, yeah, they got like, first of all, they're annoyed with Americans anyway. Secondly, they got a lot bigger fish to fry than finding a, you know, American's passport. But we thought, okay, let's do that. We asked her where it was. She, you know, for Europeans, everything's just a walk away. She goes, 10 blocks. So we, my daughter still had her phone. She puts in Google Maps, the police place. We, we go, we go about 10 blocks and, and we see on the, the Google Maps that it's still further, but I see a few police cars going out of this building and we go by that and go down. We keep going. We're on the outskirts of town. We come to this place that seems kind of remote and here is this building surrounded by barbed wire and, and, and a fence. And we see the fence, and here's two gates that open and close where a car will go. And there's a little thing where you can press a button, to, I'm guessing, to talk. My daughter has her little phone and has a little translator, reads the thing, gets it, does what it says. And a lady answers in French. And 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 my daughter says, um, do you speak English? And she goes, yes, I do. And she says, well, we just got off the plane. We're in the town. I lost either lost my passport or got stolen. I don't know. And the lady interrupts me and goes, well, what's your name? Which seemed weird. And she says, Kenzie Jackley. And, she, and the lady goes, oh, we have it. I'm going, and she, my, my daughter doesn't believe it. She goes, you have it? I mean, yep. And then she walks out with this other guy. They stand outside the fence and they have nothing. And we're going, yeah, they didn't quite understand. And so my daughter, as they get closer, she says, do you have it? She goes, yeah, we have it. The, the car, the police car will be coming any minute. We turn, and there's a police car coming up. Three people in it. One lady officer in the back going like this. <laughs> and we're bawling. And we're crying. And I, you, you could easily, if you want to kind of take a more um, atheistic or, or more of an approach where, yeah, that was just coincidence. I can tell you, I didn't even tell you all of them. There were so many what I call God incidents. There's so many places where God said, I have a hold of your life. Now, he didn't have to do that. But that was this incredible hug that God said, guess what? It all looks hopeless, but I want you to know I have a hold of your life. God has a hold of your life. It isn't hopeless. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. He loves you. He will care for you. I don't know whether you have to go through pain. Paul continued to go through a shipwreck. I think when he came to this point, he held on to God when he could see nothing else. And the next thing he did is then he began, he just remained steadfast, faithful to God. He just believed and breathed. Or if you want to put it this way, he breathed, he just took his breath and then believed and did what he knew what was right. Because when he came on to that point where he cried out to God, God graciously in his trip, I think Paul's going, God, I thought you were going to get me to Rome. He's probably like this, you know, let the ship go back and forth. And God allows for an angel to come and stand beside him and say, guess what, Paul, you're going to Rome. Don't worry about that. And guess, I'm also going to save all the people on the ship. So now you go on to this story. And and as you read the next uh, words of scripture here, I think it's really interesting. He said, um, you got to... Give it to me in the next verses. Yeah. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. Now, it looks really like, you know, he's like, you told you so. 
Maybe a little. I don't know. I mean, someday I'll ask Paul about it. He says, you would have avoided all this damage and loss, but take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. There is a sense that some of the commentators say what Paul is saying is, listen, guys, I wish you to listen to me, my wisdom and experience back then, but now I'm going to tell you something that I need to be listened to. This isn't about my wisdom and experience. This is God who spoke. And God made it really clear. He says, for last night, the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. I think it's a little God in his goodness. Take courage, for I be- I love this, for I believe God. It will be just as he said, but we'll be shipwrecked on an island. So Paul's talking to all these people who are kind of going, yeah, right, okay, we probably should have listened, but yeah, I don't know if I believe in his God stuff, right? He goes, no, 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 I want you to listen to me. Paul is just faithful. He just does what God tells him to do. Go tell everybody, you know what, you're going to be okay, whether they listen to you or not. And and then when you go ahead and you tell them this thing, here's what I'm going to do. On your faith, because he says, I believe God. Paul says, I believe God. On your faith, I'm going to demonstrate goodness to a whole lot of other people. Do you know that in the times of storms, when you're in that place where you're, you're living and saying, I want to be grateful, I want to be wise, even though foolish decisions are being made, I'm going to continue to follow you, and when it looks like it's hopeless, I'm going to hold on to you, God, I'm going to hold on with all my heart, and then I'm just going to remain faithful and steadfast to do what you tell me to do, and here's one of the great things that happen when you do this. Other people get to ride on God's goodness to you. You in your home or in your workplace, whatever. When you just, you don't go to this place of moping. You don't go to this place of despair. You continue to just trust and say, God, I'm going to hold on to you. I know that whatever happens, you're going to get me through this, whatever this is going to look like. And as I believe in God, others will experience God's goodness. That's what the word of God says. And so I, I love that. He, he says, I'm going to do that. And then the next part is just, is what I, I, I like to say. Then Paul goes on and he blesses others. Here's how he blesses others. He just loves like Jesus. You ever notice when you're in the midst of a storm and things are really bad, is your inclination anything like mine? I get really self-centered. I'm all about taking care of me. Anybody else like that? Just raise your hand if you're a little bit like that. See, the rest of you are a bunch of liars. (laughs) When you're dying, you're just trying to save yourself. You see, what happens in this last part of the passage is you get these pictures of people who are only looking at themselves and they're either doing things that are stupid or they're not doing things that would be smart. I mean, same thing, right? Anyway, listen to these words. It says here, as it kind of concludes, about midnight on the 14th night of the storm. So we're now two weeks into the storm. As we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found the water was 120 feet deep. But a little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. Again, these are little details, but they're big when it comes to understanding historical um, veracity with regard to stories. The words, everything, match up what would happen that day. Anyway, at this rate, we were afraid. They were afraid. 
we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So these are the sailors, the smart guys who know how to run the ship. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. It's that kind of foxhole prayer. God, help us. Everyone of them is praying right now. And then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. Remember Paul said everybody's got to stay in the ship? They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the boat. Shh, don't let anybody see. We're going to get out of here. Now, (laughs) Paul says to the commanding officer and soldiers, you know, we're all going to die, basically, if the sailors don't stay aboard. We need the sailors to ground the ship. And none of the passengers are going to do this. So the soldiers cut the ropes of the lifeboat and let it drift away. And the selfish sailors are going, ah, shoot. And just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. Here's another just silly kind of thing. You have been worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks. He said, please eat something now for your own good. For a, Not a hair on your head will perish. Here's what he's saying to him now. He's going, guess what, guys? If you want the strength in order to get off this boat and get to shore, you need some nourishment. You need to eat something. These are just a person who's blessing others by not looking at himself but saying, I'm going to help everyone be saved. And then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all and broke it off a piece and ate it. And then everyone was encouraged and began to eat All 276 of us were on board. After eating, the crew lightened the ship by further throwing a cargo of wheat overboard. And when morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and worried if it would go ashore by running the ship aground, if they could get it ashore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea, and then they lowered the rudders. You need sailors to do this. They raised the foresail, headed toward shore, but they hit a shoal and ran the ship aground too soon, and the bow of the ship stuck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. The soldiers, here's again another selfish act, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. (laughs) I don't want a demotion. I don't want to lose my life because I let these prisoners go. I'm going to take care of myself. We're going to kill these guys. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And the others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship so that everyone escaped safely to shore. Living gratefully, being wise in the midst of foolish decisions, holding on to God, just remaining faithful. And then in this time right now, you have the opportunity to think and act like Jesus. You can bless others. You get to love like Jesus because you know God loves you and will bless you. And everyone escapes. What I love about this is swimmers and floaters, right? Criminals and soldiers. Sailors and passengers, wise, stupid, wealthy, poor, it doesn't matter. We get to love everybody like like God does. At work, you may go, I don't like these people. God does. He loves them. And you get to bless them.